Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and welcome to Valor Studios. We are a TTRPG content creation community who love sharing our stories with the world. As I said, I'm Ryan Howard, and this is Rollin' Bones. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, it's a tabletop role-playing talk show where I bring on guests from the wide world of role-playing, and talk with them about the work that they're doing, the content they're creating, and their love of role-playing in general. If you guys like what you see or hear tonight, uh, definitely subscribe to our Twitch down here below my face. Especially if you're an Amazon Prime user, you get that uh, free Twitch subscribe, and we would love it if you would use that on us. Uh, you can find out some more information about Valor Studios and what all we have going on over at ValorStudios.com, or... On our Discord, both of which you will see over in the chat here in just a little bit. And if you're joining us from YouTube, uh, thank you for supporting us in that way. Uh, definitely like, share, and subscribe over there. And uh, feel free to join us every Monday night at 8 p.m. here at uh, twitch.tv slash Valor Studios. That's 8 p.m. Central Time every Monday night. And uh, for those of you who want to share this with you know, the wider world, if you, again, like what you hear, like what you see, uh, then, you know, the YouTube channel is one way to do it. We also want to thank everyone who listens to us on audio. And again, you know, if you want to join us live on Monday nights at 8 p.m., it's twitch.tv slash Valor Studios. So with that out of the way, uh, tonight's big mega blockbuster episode of Rolling Bones is canceled in lieu of me making an hour and a half's worth of jokes about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. I'm, of course, kidding. Uh, we have a huge show tonight featuring two people who really need no introduction in the tabletop role-playing world. Uh, so let's bring him on. You know him from Dungeon Craft. You love him. Or maybe you hate him. I don't know. Uh, but please welcome Professor Dungeon Master and also from Runehammer, the creator of the Index Card RPG, Mr. Hankerin Fernell. Guys, welcome to Rolling Bones. Yo, what's up, my man? Thanks a lot, Ryan. Absolutely. It, it's great to have you guys back on. Uh, for anyone who is, again, tuning in for the first time, both of these guys have been on separately. But now they're on here together. And I believe this is the first time you guys have done something like this together. Is, is that correct? <laughs> this isn't the worst thing you've caught us to. 
Yeah, I guess we have to dispel the myth that we're the same person. So <laughs> unless one of us is deep fake, now everybody knows we're two separate humans. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, it, it's a matter of which one's the Mr. Hyde in this case, I guess. <laughs> is that the bad guy? <laughs> we, yeah, he's the bad guy. I think we switch off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we alternate. Absolutely. But <laughs> there was one time that we rode bicycles together. <laughs> and that was that was intense. That was that was beautiful. It was like you know the scene where um, Kermit and Piggy ride bicycles together. That was the mm. vibe I was getting. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and and we do have to put to bed. Uh, actually, we don't have to put to bed these rumors because uh, people are wondering, Hankerin, uh, they've never seen you in the same room as uh, Brandish Gilhelm or uh, Ingrid Bernal. So uh, you know what's going on there. I don't know. Yeah, me and the singer for Ram Jam, uh, all four of us <laughs> are sharing a body, kind of like that that one of those horrible Keanu Reeves movies, which does not narrow down the movie list. <laughs> Ram Jam. <laughs> surrogates, that's, that's what it was called. <laughs> we have four surrogates, but there's only one mind. Man, now I've got Black Betty stuck in my head. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, we want to start this off strong, and uh, to do this, I'm going to lay out the criteria first, and then I'll ask the question. Everyone should be familiar with the rules of a comic book crossover, where two characters or two groups of characters meet, a misunderstanding causes them to fight, they fight to a stalemate, and then some kind of greater threat causes them to join forces. So with that in <laughs> mind... How would the meeting of Deathbringer with a Viking Death Squad play out in your minds? Hmm. How do we know who goes first? <laughs> Dan, you go first. I think uh, Deathbringer would be toasted because in Viking Death Squad, well, he's, he's only got metal armor. But he doesn't have, like, power armor like the Viking Death Squad. And in Viking Death Squad, you don't have hit points. When your armor fails, you're dead. Hmm. He just doesn't have that level of technology. <laughs> hmm. Well, I would consider Deathbringer to be one of the immortals, though. He's not just a dude. Like, there's, like, a skeleton under that armor or some shit. It's not just, like, Carl from accounting under there. So... I would give Deathbringer that mark, and they would discover that halfway through the opening salvo. Like, his helmet would get knocked off, and he'd be like, <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, fuck, it's Nicolas Cage's skeleton. But, that said, Deathbringer is only one dude, whereas the Death Squad is ten badass for being technical here. So, but, we have to follow the rules. So they're not just going to cream him, even if they can overcome him, they're going to get some respect for the way that he stands up to them. Mm -hmm. And then what, I don't know what the greater threat is, like a church like lands on both of them. <laughs> like from above. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, oh no, this can't be good. And then I guess they both have to battle like a, a sentient church. See, I... I was thinking, if I can chime in here, the greater threat that would bring them together, uh, since Viking Death Squad is so heavily inspired by uh, War Pigs, 
The threat that brings them together is not necessarily the war pigs this time, but it's whatever it was that mad scientist Ozzy Osbourne made in his lab in the Bark of the Moon video. Oh. <laughs> That's like some reanimator kind of stuff. But yeah, it's like uh, it's like the uh, the Bruce Tim version of Bane, sort of, but with more drippy parts. Mm -hmm. And it pops out, and... But it's got to be a human that saves the day. It can't be Deathbringer. Deathbringer is just a nasty motherfucker who mocks everybody. And the Viking Death Squad—they're like hard to relate to. So it's got—it's got to be—it's got to be like some little sort of mouse type dude, or like—I um, don't know, like the girl from Lady Hawk. She has to like pop in there, and she's got—I don't know—got like an amulet that like makes Drippy Bane chill out. <laughs> We're, we're we're reaching here. We're reaching it. Never meant to be a contest. Yeah. I don't know, Dan. Do you have any thoughts on what the greater threat would uh, would be that brings everyone together? Well, I was thinking it would be a demon because you got demons in Viking Death Squad too. You know, like living in that that hellscape, popping up all the time. So, mm -hmm. I would make it a demon. It's like John Leguizamo Violator pops up. Yeah. Or whatever that okay, thing on that. the cover of Bat Out of Hell 2, or... <laughs> was there even a good soundtrack to spawn? Like, I, I can't even remember. I, I think I always played the Mortal Kombat soundtrack in the background while watching Spawn with no sound. I don't know. Leguizamo was good in that movie, though. Mm -hmm. He's like the best yeah, thing about totally. that movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool, so... I've got some questions for both of you guys tonight, and I've got some questions for each of you individually. Obviously, uh, you know, if you guys want to weigh in on each other's questions, you know, feel free to. But I do want to start uh, something off here with uh, with Brandon. Um, between the last conversation we had and uh, tonight, you have had something kind of major happen in that you are now working with and uh, publishing through Modifius. How has that been going for you so far? Well, I mean, uh, the quality of the books that they make, they use a printer in Lithuania, and the, the products that they make are, are really freaking awesome. The quality is super cool, not just because it's like an offset print, it's, I don't know, it's got a really nice, it even smells really good. It feels really good in your hand. So that part was out of my reach before. So I love that. Thank you, by the way, Chris, if you're tuning in right now for all that stuff. It's probably really late for him right now. Um, but I do have to put a big butt on this, which is uh, like sort of a mass or what I would call old school publishing. Definitely has some gnarly uh delayed gratification issues. <laughs> you know i i really like being like like in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with people who read the stuff that i make and that may sound a little crazy when it's you know like up you know like more than like ten thousand people but if you spread those people over the course of a few years when you talk to them and stuff you really can have like a dope like convo even if it's a short one with almost everyone that you you get something to, or at least like half of them in a, in a meaningful way. And I really love that. And I had gotten really used to that. And so then going to like this sort of, there's a shipping container of books. 
right now over it's like sailing over the Atlantic Ocean and there's like a murder happened on the ship where I added that part. <laughs> but anyway, if you think about like shipping containers and like retail, like I don't get to meet any of the people who buy anything that I've done in retail. And so they keep telling me, no, this is great. You're selling a ton of books. Everything's working out. And I'm just like, I can't feel human emotions. <laughs> so I got to say it's a mixed bag. I really like the kind of cottage style of publishing. It's definitely as limiting as far as scale and like, you know, revenue to be totally frank. Mm -hmm. um, but the big publishing, there's, there's, there's a less personal feel to it. And that's really new to me. So I'm kind of just like, I need to talk to my peoples. Um, so I don't know. It's been it's been cool, I guess. I, the the quality of the books is cool. So I just can't deny that aspect. But um, I don't know if I'll I'll get ravenous about it. You know, some people go into big publishing and they kind of never go back to print on demand. But frankly, I kind of miss print on demand already. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Chris is, is if he's watching this. That's Chris over at Minodifius. He's going to going to like send me a stream of weird emojis in the morning to be <laughs> but yeah that's how it's been going so it's 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 mixed it's awesome reach but i miss the personal component of being tiny do you think they'll let you do an index card conan book <laughs> let me <laughs> No, I do what I want, man. Nobody <laughs> lets me do anything. <laughs> I don't know. I would never fuck with Conan, to be honest. I mm -hmm. that is sacred ground. That that's uh, you know, I don't make jokes about the Christian God, and I don't mess with Conan. Those are two things that are just like out of my area. <laughs> so, I think they've done a pretty good job. I, I think there's mixed response to two D twenty. Some people, it's it can be crunchy. I think the Star Trek crowd absolutely loves 2D20. I yeah. know uh, if Starships is out there watching right now, he is like a massive fan of Conan 2D20. Um, I don't know. I knew I knew Conan mostly from GURPS back in the <laughs> early 90s playing Conan. So I have no desire to fuck with Conan. I wouldn't touch that with a with a 10 foot prod. That that's out of my zone. Gotcha. And now uh, another question that I have for you uh, related to some of the stuff you've been doing recently. You have been doing an OSE campaign. I have not dipped my toes into OSE at all. Uh, so as far as, you know, the, your players engagement with it, uh, you running the game, how have you enjoyed running an OSE campaign? And then. Uh, Professor, mm. I, I also want to get your thoughts on OSE as well, just because, just again, this is a new system for me, not one that I've spent a lot of time in. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Me and Dan are very similar in that it probably doesn't matter really what we're playing. <laughs> by, the, by the end of the third hour, we've mutilated <laughs> whatever whatever is salient to that night, you know? So OSE is great. I love the books. They're very easy to handle. I wish they had more rollable stuff. Like, I don't know. I, we really like rolling D100s to get either a monster or a loot or something. I don't know why any book would ever not do that. Um, so you kind of need to use the index to kind of wing it with that. But fucking OSE is great. I mean, it's D&D. &D, so, I mean, Dan would probably tell you the same thing. It's just like, 
yeah, look at this. It's D&D. Oh, wait. Oops. We've already homebrewed it halfway through the first session. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, man? <laughs> I One of the things I noticed watching your show and on, on the Friday streams is how it, yeah, it kind of, uh, kind of moved into a roll under system. It evolved. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it did. But, well, the number one question we had at our, as far as system goes, we don't, really don't talk about the system much. But the, the one that I had was like, what's my attack bonus? I must have heard that stupid question like 25 times a night. So about in our 10th session or so, yeah, just like uh, Dan is saying, like we were just like this. I'm so sick of this question. You just roll under your strength to attack with a sword. And some people would be like, oh, my God, but that guy has a 17 strength. It's going to be too easy. Uh, tell him that because he, he will yep. totally disagree that it was too easy, even though it seems like on paper that would happen. But yeah, we did. I mean, talk about a huge change that OSE does not mention. I've I've played in games where people have actually done that with uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, where they turn that into Roll Under, which was also pretty interesting. So yeah, that's that's an interesting mechanic that I don't think a lot of people play with very often anymore is uh, kind of that, that roll under scenario. Black hack suckers. That. Mm -hmm. that is, <laughs> that is, that's black hack. It's pretty much old school gaming, but you just roll under everything. But I, I, I yep. love old school essentials. I, I think that the binding is great. The books look great. And I have a, a soft spot for Moldvay. You know, I'm mean, like the that version is right behind me. I got two copies of it recently. So I love it for nostalgic purposes. But if someone asked me, like, well, what should I get? If the arrangement and presentation of the new stuff is just so much more succinct and you have everything on the inside covers. And I, I just think it's uh, it's great. Um, you know, I've always felt that the, the subsystems are a little wonky. You know, like switching off to pick a lock and you got a percentage or climb a wall like why aren't you using a d20 but mm -hmm. I, I i i dig it i love i love the low hit points you know that stuff is really cool i love the simplicity of like zero hit points you're just dead you know those are all things i just love about that particular game system yeah agreed the, those those are the, the absolute key points but I got I got to hang with you on that one, Dan. If you go back to the original material that we associate with what's so great about some of this stuff, it is a little more difficult to process just moment by moment. Like, you know, the original stuff from the 80s can be a little more convoluted. Like, there is a salient increase in arrangement, I think, in OSC that is really, really nice. Especially when you see people learning D&D right in front of your eyes. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the most valuable things about a lot of these OSR books, whether your your poison is uh, OSE or uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics or Black Hack or, uh, you know, whatever system you're using. Someone has already gone through, taken the, uh, you know, the good meaty chunks from those old school games and kind of left behind a little bit of the... Uh, more obscure, more, you know, sloggy areas where it's difficult to understand what's actually going on and they've arranged it in a way that's pleasing to modern sensibilities. So, yeah. you know, it's good to know that that OSE does that pretty well as well. So. If I had a big a big ding on OSE, 
I would say that, uh, which, you know, I mean, if you're playing old school D&D, you're probably a hacker anyway, but the, their monsters don't have a lot of, like, tricks. And I find that to be too easy for resourceful players. <laughs> um, so, like, take a giant alligator, for example. When we fucked with a giant alligator, I looked at the stat block and it's just, like, so dry. It would never have stood a chance against my players. It would be completely uninteresting. So I had to give it, like, a giant snapping bite. It was a save versus death as a sort of a trick. And then like, does it do that on its turn? You know, maybe I would flip a coin for that. And I do think tricks are, maybe it's because players are more savvy these days or something. Maybe maybe they, they know about monster tropes in a better way, but dang, if they're not hard to kill, even when they have like six hit points. Crappy these days. Absolutely. And then uh, one more question for you, uh, and this is related to a book that both uh, Professor Dungeon Master and I love very much, and that is this uh, 5e Hardcore Mode book. Yeah, that was Dan's uh, idea. <laughs> this this really is, for anyone who wants to teach uh, your players who are familiar with 5th edition uh, how to play kind of in a more old school way where it's a lot deadlier, uh, you know, low hit points, all that stuff, capped at level 10, 5e hardcore mode, if I can get it to not reflect off my light there, 5e hardcore mode is is the place to go for it. So the question that I have related to hardcore mode, uh, do you plan on putting out any kind of modules or anything else uh kind of to go along with what you've got here in <laughs> IV hardcore mode or is I don't know. It just but first of all I got to mention that whole thing was totally Professor Dungeon Master's idea straight up. He mentioned that in a video must have been two and a half years ago saying I wish they would make hardcore literally called it hardcore mode. That's how uncreative I am. <laughs> and uh we were kind of we didn't really like know each other per se but we we're starting to orbit each other at that point. And so I was road tripping. I was actually moving. I had all my possessions in a van. I was crossing the country in a blizzard. So I'm white knuckling in the snow, like in freaking Iowa or some other hellish Midwest state. <laughs> and I'm like, Ugh. and in that moment, man, you really get some like brain nugging. And I thought, you know what? Fashion Dungeon Master, he's fucking right, man. There should be a book that is just openly called hardcore mode. It doesn't even like, it's no there's no nonsense so so that is how that book was born so right when i kind of had the idea and it was coming together i had to contact him i'm like do you mind if i completely ape your idea and he's like yeah cool um so on that front there we go that's where it came from the the book does include my vampire castle um it's super fun making modules for hardcore mode but i'm telling you curating that art in high resolution is no small task. I think maybe people think I just look up like public domain art and I magically get like these super tasty high res images of like etchings from the 17th century. That is not how it goes down. Like it is it is extremely difficult to get art for that for that material to hold the sort of level of historical art that's in there. Yeah. Um and that would be the only barrier holding back me back from making another module. Um, but yeah, that book is sold like crazy pants. So I guess it could be worth a few more like sleepless nights trying to find the 
the one high-res PNG of, like, you know, Gustav's <laughs> fucking ship with the curly waves. Like, oh, my God, that one just drove me wild. I failed. I failed to get a high-res of that. But anyways, I would love to make more of that stuff. Um, it's just a matter of how many times I get poked in the ribs by readers. Basically, just do whatever I get poked most for. Like, I reach a critical mass of people asking me to do things. So you just, I'll, I'll count that as one poke. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Now, we do have a, a question here from uh, James, the Dungeon Master, uh, over here in chat. Uh, first of all, he's very complimentary of both of you guys. He says he's currently running Curse of Strahd with uh, ICRPG and Deathbringer rules kind of mixed together. Um, yeah. So he he credits you guys for helping him completely rethink the way that he's running his games. And along those same lines, uh, he asks both of you, if you had to boil down your theories of game mastering to a single most important piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, oh man. <laughs> Smoke is rising from Isengard. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got it. I've got this one. You want, you oh, want sweet. Yeah. Okay. All D&D is, is 15 or better, you succeed. Nine or below, you fail. Ten to fourteen, gotta ask the game master or check a character sheet. It's the whole game. It's the whole game. No matter how high the levels get, no matter how many proficiency bonuses, you know, instead of your boss monster, instead of having a, a difficulty fifteen like on first level, you're on seventh level. It becomes twenty. So the monsters are always getting progressively higher as well. And and the whole, if you remove all the bonuses in the entire character sheet, 15 or better is a success. 9 or below is a failure, 10 to 14. Got to check with the game master. And the whole assigning difficulties, it's not numbers between 1 and 20. Why would you assign a difficulty of 2? If the player failed, they 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 feel like a you know they feel like a loser. It's humiliating. You only sign difficulties between ten and sixteen. That's it. That's my single most. Point. If you understand that, you could run the game of D and D without any rules and probably without character sheets. That's what I think. Hmm. Hmm. The single biggest GM tip. You hit the how to cook all the numbers down. So I guess I have to cook down the esoteric side. I mean, Dan's right. What? No matter what you say, that that golden number may, whether it's 12, 13, 15, having a golden number, yeah, it's ab that's absolutely unarguable. Poof. I guess I would say I would go to my old uh, my sort of energy. Is that if you're going to be the game master? It is up to you to be the keeper of energy. You have to be fucking psyched. Play some motherfucking D&D, damn it. Bone crunching, kick-ass D&D. Not no sleepy pants staff meeting. But it's like somebody grumpy in one corner looking at their phone. No. Your, your responsibility as a game master, of course, is all this other shit. Cool story, poetic stuff, numbers, like Dan said. But for me, it is like showing up and like getting the sort of the 
the beacon of, of the fun level we're going to have right now. Like for the next few 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 hours, we're going to have this much fun. Now it's not like, you know, like I don't know, like sailing the Greek islands, jumping off the back of a yacht, fun. We're not quite to that point. We're like just now a few notches below because it's a little more sedated. But mm. you, you you're coming in psyched, and I think the the more going on in people's lives, the more burden you're going to have to do this thing. So if you have a lot of people who don't have a lot to do. It's super easy, but if you're either at a con or people got like heavy duty jobs or they got like scores of children running around, then it takes a lot to like rally people as a leader of like energy level. But if you can do it and you get these games that we all remember. And, and for me, that is a huge, huge deal. And I think it's why sometimes it's draining the game masters. You don't want it to be fucking boring. You know, like, screw boring d and I, I just can't stand it. So I think it's the Game Master's job not to make it friggin' boring. <clears throat> I feel like we did a great job there summing up, like you said, the, the numbers and the esoteric side of things. That's <laughs> That is really, really great. Now, uh... One reason why I'm really excited to have Dan on the show tonight, you are who I would consider the foremost expert on urban role-playing, and I am trying to write a city book right now. So my question for you, Dan, to to start things off here, uh, when it comes to creating an urban environment for adventuring and role-playing, what tips do you have for making a city feel lived in and alive? That's a great question. So uh -huh. I inherited my my campaign, my long running campaign, it's going over 25 years now, from a buddy of mine. And we grew up in New York City and he grew up in the city city. He grew up in Hell's Kitchen. And this is when Hell's Kitchen was Hell's Kitchen, where like it like daredevil Hell's yep. Kitchen, like he was actually robbed in a school at knife point like in the bathroom, like it was bad. Like that never happens in, 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 you know, New York city school today. The, um, and, and hell's kitchen is like, I just took my family there. We went to a taco place. Like, it's not like the same, but we grew up in like seventies, eighties, New York. And we went taking the train all the time. And it was like Joker, you know, like that's what it was like. So, I think that that definitely influenced his campaign and when I took it over. And you always have this sense that when you go to the city, that there are certain iconic places, like there's Times Square, there's City Hall, there's St. Patrick's Cathedral. And you go to these, and then, you know, Greenwich Village, this forbidden planet. And there are these places and you go to them and, and they're always the same. You always go back to the same, you see the same people there. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you really have to have certain places that are defined. All the city doesn't need to be defined, but there's certain places and certain people at those places that make it feel like it's a real place. And a good model is actually The Simpsons, All right? When you think of The Simpsons, when you think <laughs> of Springfield, you know, you know, like, okay, there's a nuclear power plant, there's the church, there's... Uh, the uh, the uh, 
what are all the places, the school, right? The town hall with Jebediah Springfield. And you know, the mayor is there and you know, Mr. Burns is at the nuclear power plant. And, <laughs> and there's a person associated with that place. And you return to those, the place you return to those people. So you want to have NPCs like at the Wizards Guild, you know, you want to have Garen the Mage there. And it's always Garen when you go there. And when you go to the Drowned Rat Tavern, you know, the the contact there is Scratch, you know, and he's an old guy and you pay him in, in whiskey and, you know, he kind of scratches this. Yeah, I can tell you about, you know, this the Skull Gang. And so that's, and the players keep going back to those places, seeing those NPCs, that's what makes it seem real. So if you need to know how to design a city, it's the Simpsons. And you don't you don't you don't have a map of Springfield, but you kind of have a sense of it in your head. I think that most people with a city, they start with a map. But you don't want to start with a map. You want to have it kind of existing in a in a in a not a completely nebulous space, like you're grounded in those certain pinpoint areas <laughs> and the rest of it you kind of can is malleable. <laughs> that was a long answer. I don't know if I did that right. Hey, that was, was a good a, one. I like Yeah, fantastic. Now, one thing I've noticed, and, and one thing that you actually talked about in some of the city videos that I uh, have watched of yours, uh, city environments need different rules and different ways that people interact with each other or that people interact with the players based on what they look like or how they're dressed or what they're carrying. And I've come up with a couple rules that I am planning on implementing in Nighthaven, my city. And so I wanted to run a couple of those by you and see uh, what your thoughts were on this. So the first one is anytime there is a conflict, uh, including combat or a loud discussion or some kind of chase, a die is rolled. If it's crowded in the city, it'll be a D4. If it's not, it'll be a D8. And in that number of rounds, reinforcements for the bad guys or the city guard are going to show up. What What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a, a good mechanic to make conflict or combat have kind of a different feel to it in a city environment? I think it's a great mechanic. And it's very similar to the count, the countdown mechanic in Index Card RPG, right? Where after a combat begins, a certain number of rounds, something terrible is going to happen mm-hmm. unless it is not resolved. And it's also a board game, Cadwallon City of Thieves, where the players are all these different street gangs and they're going after these different magic items. And at a certain place, the time, time the, 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 the timer, you know, starts and... They start gating off the sections of the city so you can't get away. Because if you're if you're stealing from somebody, somebody's gonna see. That's why people move <laughs> to cities, because it was safer. Like someone's <laughs> gonna see there's a dude on that roof. And at a certain point, they're going to call the the watch, and the watch have whistles, and they're going to respond. So I think a timer is a great idea. And I would add, this is another cool idea. I just read a a module terror in the streets uh, i got a review coming up it's lamentations of the flame princess and they have an unrest die so if there's something happening in the city like uh people are being you know there's a serial killer 
killing people, which is what happens in this module, that the, the unrest die moves higher and the streets get more crowded, more violent, and you end up with crowds of people that are very angry. That's another cool mechanic. Gotcha. Gotcha. Another thing you've talked about in your videos is the fact that in medieval cities, uh, you could carry a dagger and a sword for self-defense, but generally speaking, armor and helmets and, and things like that usually frowned upon, if not outright illegal in most medieval cities. So uh, in addition to having kind of, you know, guards try to make uh, your, your paladin or your warrior take their helmet off and not wear their armor around, uh, what would you say to a kind of like blanket charisma penalty to players that walk around uh, armed for bear in the city? <laughs> my my feeling is I don't like charisma checks for social encounters. Gotcha. I, I would uh, have sumptuary laws. <laughs> I would have, upon entering a city, the guards would tell the players, well, these are the rules of the city. And you can't, I mean, that's, and that's when your wealth was assessed, you were taxed based on what you had. And they would say, well, you can't carry a shield. You've got to take your armor off, buddy. You can't just carry a crossbow around. So they would be told that. <laughs> and then you'd also have to register yourself. You'd have to, upon entering a city, you'd have to say, this is who I am. This is my destination. And the innkeeper where you stayed was legally responsible for you. So there was an incentive for that innkeeper to be a spy. So if you're saying to the innkeeper, yeah, where's the uh, wealthy section of town? And the innkeeper would be like, well, why? Oh, no, we just, you know, we're figuring out, you know, like, well, we just go, might walk, take a stroll out tonight. And, you know, these are people with, like, grappling hooks and dark clothes on. Well, as soon as that they go, you know, the innkeeper would be obligated to tell the watch, hey, there are suspicious looking people in my inn. And when you when you go to a place in the Middle Ages, someone you have to go to a destination and someone has to vouch for you. Um, so I would establish those things upon entering. And then once you're in there, there's a lot of clothing is very important. You're not allowed to dress above your station. And, you know, I have I'm running this um Power Behind the Throne, which is a great urban, probably the best urban adventure ever, political mm -hmm. intrigue urban. I did a review of it, and I'm running it for some of my uh, younger, my youth group. And they have, it's a lot of social encounters, including with people who are up there on the social scale. So they kind of meet intermediate characters who say, well, you know, if you want to go to the opera, you have to dress this way. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't dress the way you are. You know, and then that leads to the characters having to spend an enormous amount of money dressing up to go to get into these different areas. Otherwise, if you dressed in an unusual way and you were in a wealthy section of the city, they would say, who are you? And they would make you leave. You know, it was very important how you dressed. And people would be paying attention to it at the time. They would say, oh, it must be an adventure because I'm looking at your boots, you know. And uh, so there's a sense that uh, in these old cities in medieval times that everybody kind of knew who each other was and that, you know, they dressed the part. It's not that easy to sneak around. 
Absolutely. And uh, before we get on to the next question, uh, just have to acknowledge Xavion85 and chat here is just making it rain with sub gifts. So thank you for that. That is very generous of you. <laughs> uh, we we appreciate that. Um, the next thing that I wanted to talk with you about when it comes to cities, one thing that I've tried to incorporate in my city is uh, these elements of urban legends. So in Nighthaven, uh, there may or may not be some kind of crocodile man in the sewers that players <laughs> may or may not encounter when they go down there. Uh, have you ever played around with any kind of like cryptids or uh, kind of things that go bump in the night that may or may not be hanging around the sewers, graveyards or uh, places like that in, in your cities? Absolutely. Every graveyard has ghouls. Every sewer has rat people. The, 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 the key to making them cool is whether you call them Skaven or Ratmen or Vermin or Were-Rats like Fritz Leiber did. The key is you've got to figure out why they're still a legend. Like, so my Vermin disintegrate as soon as they're killed. Like, just leaving the bones behind. Even the bones, kind of. That way they can remain a legend. Because if you could kill them and drag them up, stuff them at the taxidermist and put them on display, well, then they wouldn't be scary anymore. That's the problem with, like, Warhammer scaven, like, <laughs> that they're seen so often that they're no longer frightening. But the idea that there are these secret things, you know, mutants living in the, in the city is very scary. So there's evidence has to be minimal, and they've got to disintegrate or something. Or there has to be something, some higher authority in the city that's determined to keep them a secret. Or that could be that too. So I, I got a question for Brennan about city, mm. which is you're not the biggest fan of ur urban environments. Yeah, I, I, I would love to be a player in what you're describing because I would be getting a massive education. Because, uh, well, we've kind of talked about this, you know, just between us, but, you know, in, in, I can't imagine all this order. My worlds are in such crisis all the time. It's like, uh, I guess you, know, you make a cool point because like medieval is definitely a, a sensibility. So you, I liked how you, you use the mantra of saying in a medieval city, it -ta -ta -ta, and then you can put statements there and like, you can use cool knowledge to, to make that, you know, have veracity and truth to it. And I think in my mind, I was sitting there thinking like, oh, my God, I don't think any of my games are in a medieval world. They're they're in a fantasy world. They're in a much more of a like going back to the dusty chestnut here. It's kind of more like a Conan world, like all of the cities and towns that we go to have major problems that are unfolding right fucking now. <laughs> like clothes, are you kidding me? Like no one, lucky if you have clothes, like, and there's one guy like just running down the street with like a big handful of like wedding gowns. You know, like, what the hell was that guy? I don't know, we'll never know. That was just welcome to my chaotic world. But the more that you were talking, it's, it's fascinating because the way that you're proposing little Rubik's cubes for players to solve, right? You're asking them to think about matching the colors on one side, and then maybe they'll start to think about the second side of the cube. And I do that too, for sure, with my cities, but I think 
the colors on the Rubik's Cube in my world are much more like, you know, the West Wall has crumbled. And like everyone is running around going crazy and panicking because, you know, the Huns are coming. <laughs> and so I've never, I don't, I think it's just because I don't really have a mind for the opera is a perfect example. I know that a lot of players love this kind of stuff, this kind of nuanced, interesting, wow, this feels really quite real. Like you can't go to the opera with a fucking winged helmet on. Like that's, unless of course you're in the opera, but yeah. I, I just I just tend to not have those thoughts. I tend to have these kind of, like the thing with Spawn that we were saying earlier, I do think in a very Spawn-like world. Mm -hmm. So if you think of it, if, for those of you out there who uh, read Spawn, Spawn, there, there's not a lot of normal life when you're reading Spawn comics. Right. There's not a lot of sandwiches and stuff. Well, unless you read the Capullo ones, because he loves drawing sandwiches. <laughs> but, you know, there's not a lot of like, you know, uh, what's that outfit? Or like, you know, uh, you know, what's your background? You know, where did you come from? You know, geopolitically speaking. Like, I just, my mind doesn't really work that way. I think in like Uzis and battle axes, explosions and like, so my cities, like Blackmore is a perfect example. And I, I, Dan, I love your thing about Simpsons. Like my Blackmore is a lot like the Simpsons. So I know people out there run Blackmore like you do with like a much bigger sort of social brain. But my Blackmore was, had all, you know, like these massive problems, like four major problems. And normal people are almost never encountered because they're always hiding or slamming the shutters. You know, it's interesting when you mention something like a tavern, too. Like, I imagine your tavern feeling like uh, Mr. Underhill kind of a moment. You know, like, the nuance is so detailed that Frodo needs to lie about his last name. Like, the levels happening in that micro-encounter remind me of your style. And I think in my style, like, my tavern, the one that we've been playing, is called the Frothy Mare. And, like, it's always just chaos. It's like the Muppet Show in there. It's like... Everybody's just like punching each other, and like it's just a it, there's this giant moose over the bar, and people, like throw things at it and stuff. And it's just it's just bedlam, and I don't really mean to do that, <laughs> it just must be how I think. Because to be totally honest, it sounds really nice to live in your world, Dan, <laughs> like where you have nice clothes, go out. That sounds amazing. <laughs> like, my guys are like talking to a rat who is actually happens to be the king of the rats and then turning around and like stabbing a guy and pulling his cloak back. And it's actually a frogman. And then there's like 40 of them. <laughs> so that's, that's my thing with cities is that I just do it. It's just a constant state of chaos in my world. We very, very rarely get some of the interesting stuff that, that you're talking about. And even when we do it, we kind of get it more like in forts or, or maybe in a camp. Like a camp is enough for me to process. There'll be a beautiful girl and she'll like take a liking to one of the heroes maybe. And that interest and that intrigue, but she's like off limits and she's part of this thing and there's actually some subterfuge. Okay, I can handle that like in a, you know, when there's like three tenths <laughs> because, because my brain is small. <laughs> so that's my take on cities. There you go. It's not that I dislike them. It's just... I do think they're notorious for for slogging the game, but I don't think that I don't think you have that problem, my brother. <laughs> and, yeah. and if I can, oh, sorry, go ahead, Dan. No, 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 you go ahead. 
I'll just I one one thing that kind of differentiates the two in my mind it, it's the difference between is is the primary story or the primary action of your game going to be set in a city where you need to have some of that stuff figured out or is a city just going to be another setting where something happens i, I think it's the uh, a mm-hmm. matter of how long is everyone going to be in this one environment because if this is where everything is happening you need to know a little bit more about that world than if your players right. just kind of stumble into a random city to have kind of an episodic encounter with something where you know the west wall is collapsing like you said uh in that case you you don't necessarily need to figure out what uh kind of laws the the noble class has about how you dress when you go to the opera uh but right. if you're going to be in the city for a while uh and at that moment that's where you kind of need to figure out uh okay how how do the cogs spin here yeah i was going to say the um one of the the differences between city adventures and other types of adventures that you might want to think about for your book is that a city all the characters have all the resources like you're not going to run out of, I don't know, knives in a city. There are plenty of places to buy knives. It's like, oh, like in a cave, you could run out of rope. In a city, you'll never be able to run out of rope. So what you have to do is think about if you're going to have a scenario there, there has to be some sort of time limit. Yep. Every scenario needs a time limit. Like you have to get yeah. this thing by sunrise because that's when the Thieves Guild needs it. You have to stop Amen. Right. And you, you uncover the, the cultists and they're going to sacrifice this victim and they're going to do it within the hour. That's why you can't go to the mages guild and get Dumbledore to come down to the sewer with you. Like yep. that is really important. Amen to that. Absolutely. And we do have and a couple in more. Either style, in either style, that's absolutely true. Absolutely. Now we do have a couple more questions here from the chat. Uh, John Q. Himes has a question here. Uh, so he wants to do kind of an old school dungeon crawl. He says Gygax AD&D type campaign with twisty quarters, mo- wandering monsters, resource management. But he also wants to incorporate uh, some of the plot elements, dramatic tensions and he, he wants to know the best way to offer his players kind of both in the same game. Hmm. My feeling Common is... Common dilemma. Go common, ahead. Common dilemma. Go ahead. You go. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's a common dilemma. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you want your spaghetti and your meatballs. But I guess if the question is sort of how, I would just, um, I don't know, I would throw them in the twisty part. Twisty part is uh, is much more nuts and bolts. And I would let the, the story arc emerge from gems that they are accidentally planting. I, I would harvest their interests, not my own. There, there are always things I want to do campaign because i'm the i'm the weirdest person i'm the game master i'm the one with the most interests and the most research in the hobby fuck that it doesn't matter 
What matters is the little things that they're interested in. And you'll know within 45 minutes of putting players into a freaking, well, shit, just like Dan said, you got limited rope and you're in a freaking cave. And then there's some rat dudes. Okay, let's just go with like some of these basics. You will know very quickly what players are kind of interested in just by little verbal cues that they'll give. And that's where I would start to, you know, do some hand wringing, not necessarily in the moment, but right when that first session was done, I'd quickly, before I went to sleep that night, I would get to the journal and try to harvest a couple of those little verbal cues that the players gave, if I didn't just outright ask them. And that was where I would build the, the archetype stuff, the story type stuff. But I would start with the simpler thing, which is the twisty corridors, the, the Gygaxian dungeon. That's a nice, I mean, that's just like breakfast in the morning. That You don't want a bunch of crazy experimental food. You want your, your eggs when it's simple. So I would start there and then forget what I'm thinking about as a story. Just like pick up, maybe they're, they think the undead are cool or they're, they're looking for strange symbols. And I'm like, I never said there were weird symbols, but interesting. Yeah, maybe there are weird symbols. So that's how I would merge the two. I would start with the simpler one, harvest what they're interested in to make the more complex one. Yeah, there was a great episode of Questing Beast a couple weeks ago about Gary Gygax's lost campaign uh, rules. And it talks about how in original D&D, a campaign was for between 5 and 50 people. And that's because... Gygax imagined the world, he imagined a world, it was like an MMO, where you have a bunch of different groups that are competing and they're operating in the same area concurrently. So what you end up doing is like, and, and the, the prototype is in the basic rule book, it's the Caves of Chaos with the keep on the borderlands. And the keep's in the center and the Caves of Chaos are nearby. And you would have a bunch of different groups going to the Caves of Chaos, meeting at different times. So you might go to Cave A, the Cobalt Lair, but you went there after the first group. So all you find is dead, rotting cobalts and no treasure. Right? <laughs> now, now, and they skunked you and they took the treasure. Now you have a conflict. And then you go to a different cave. And then when they get there, there, there are, uh, you know, dead goblins. And then that creates a dynamic where you always want to get back to the world as soon as possible because you realize there are competing forces. There might be three or four different groups. And then a story will emerge, possibly with other players in other groups being the antagonists. And you could have banners, you know, you could have our adventuring, you know, group, this is our adventuring, you know, team or club or whatever. And then you've got other ones that are competing against them and you know that they're there and these stories will just emerge like if you get captured you get thrown into the prison cells maybe the other group comes and, and you got to ransom yourself out and now you've got all these plots that you you didn't think of and that's the brilliance of that's that's part of it's gygax is not just you know the corridors and stuff like that it's how you build out this world and it's a dynamic world with a lot of conflict that just naturally emerges. And you as the game master have to do uh, what Brandon said. You got to listen very carefully to the players and write down what they're interested in. Oh, that's an interesting plot thread. And you kind of weave that into the story. 
Yeah, and if I can if I can take a swing at this one myself, um, I I tried to do something very similar in my Dark Sun game where the players encountered rumors in one of the towns that there were uh, green humanoids running around in the desert somewhere and that they'd kidnapped someone's apprentice. Those green humanoids were orcs, and for people unfamiliar with uh, Dark Sun, orcs are extinct. There are no orcs, so the people on Athos don't know what orcs are, including the players. So they find these people, and they're like, well, you know, what are you? Where'd you come from? And they go, uh, we came from down there, and they point at this giant hole in the ground. And so the players wanted to go down in there and find out, you know, what exactly is going on in there. And what they found down there, they found treasure, they found magic items, but they also found uh, lore. And they found out what this hole in the ground was. It was a dwarven citadel that uh, Boris of Tyr, the big dragon, had literally sunk into the ground when he was uh, going around trying to exterminate all of the demi-humans on Athos. And they found first-hand accounts of the siege from dead bodies and journals. Uh, so the, the answer that I found is effective in, in my games is even if they go in there just for the treasure, even if they're going into the caves uh, for the, you know, the sake of finding cool stuff, there's got to be some, some lore, some fascinating things that hook them. And that's where uh, I think Brandon's advice of, you know, listen to your players, listen to what they think is cool, and adjust on the fly if you have to. That's how you get the the hooks of, you know, oh, what's this what's this magic sword that's talking back to me uh, every time <laughs> I, I try to use it? Where did where did this thing come from? If they're super fascinated by that, then then, you know, that's where you make the adjustment. But th there's gotta be something else down there besides shiny things. Now we've got another question here from Project Fullblade. Hi, Joe. Or John. I think it's Joe. Good friend of mine. Good friend of the show. Uh, for both of you, what's your favorite player or monster death that you've experienced in-game? Hmm. Jeez, I don't know. I mean, just because of freshness and proximity in time, I'd have to say our, our character Zippler from the end of OSE, where he he let himself be basically grindered into nothing in the, the plane of fire because he didn't want to return to the world and be a vampire. He lived with that. So they had a way out, and they could have rescued him, and he chose to stay and he was i don't know if anybody remembers that great scene from uh uh is it from riddick or pitch black i'm not sure i think it's from riddick the guy goes out into the no it's pitch black no it's riddick he goes out into the fiery dawn you know when dawn mm -hmm. comes over that planet and it's mega hot yep. and he intentionally like walks out into this insanely hot wind in chronicles of riddick like like tears his arm off like he goes down and it's like his knees like are like the lower part of his legs are like turned to embers and he falls on his knees and he's like just blown into ashes and that's how we had described it and it was like super fucking sad because <laughs> he was like our 
our leader. He was the, the the only true good guy in our group. So I I think that was mine. Just because it was so recent, it's just still very fresh in my mind. My favorite are when the players kill each other. Yeah. Um, I've, I've written. <laughs> I, I enjoy paranoia once in a while. Oh my god! <laughs> a great way to let the players let out. You know, they. You know, every party has a little tension and allows them to shoot each other. And I also have. Uh, I'm working on now. Uh, it's called the Eldritch Hack. It's essentially called Cthulhu, but with only one stat characters. And there's a scenario in there called Cloak House, where if you're the last people left alive, you get to inherit this mansion. And the player characters basically ended up killing all each other. <laughs> and that's always that's always fun when they go after each other. It's not good in a long running campaign. I'm gonna have a whole episode. Player on player combat is not good for a long running campaign, but for white like a one shot, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And, uh, Especially just, if you can blame the elder gods, yeah. you know, like if you can just couch it in some some bugs from a fungus planet that like looked you in the eye, and so now you got to kill other people. <laughs> like that, that's just a, like that's just moral carte blanche to kill other players. <laughs> mm -hmm. Lathotep moves in mysterious ways. So uh, just real quick to address this one from Christoph Gaming. Uh, tips for running Dark Sun. Use Dungeon Crawl Classics. That is the best modern system uh, that gets kind of the magic, the Vancean magic of uh, Dark Sun right, in my opinion. I did a whole episode on or it with Lou Alu. Definitely use DCC. And then... Uh, I mean, I can say this if you want me to, Brandon, or you can say it because you had a great point about just the tone and the the philosophy, the mindset of Dark Sun uh, last time we spoke. If you remember it, I'll let you say it. But if not, then I can say it. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's just it's a very stripped down world. I mean, it's if you if generally if a question is asked, are there X is no, that's like a really great place to begin. Yeah, and the thing that has stuck in my mind ever since we had this conversation that, that you told me, Brandon, it's this notion that you look up in the sky and and reach out to uh, to a god and there's nothing there. Nothing answers, yeah. Yep. So again, there's the principle. Are there gods for me to pray to? No. <laughs> Do I have a knife? <laughs> Probably not. No. <laughs> The second is a oh, sharp rock. <laughs> Are there trees? No. Dan, do you have any thoughts on on running Dark Sun? Have you ever done it before? No, I, but I remember reading it, and I always thought that that was the best D and D world. Hmm. That was, and and I I don't know if they if they're planning to uh, to if that's one of the worlds they're planning to resurrect. Do you know if that's one of the ones? Because they've announced a few. I don't know if they're going I back. don't know. I, I can't see it going well. If they tried to do but, it, it wouldn't feel the same. I mean, look what they how, did to Avernus. You know? It yeah. was supposed to be a tribute to Dante's Inferno. It became like a bad Warcraft expansion. Mm -hmm. It was like all these colorful 
all the colorful and zany things that you find in hell. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like, dang, <laughs> that tone got botched. Oh, <laughs> so like doing the dark sun tone, 5e Technicolor land. I don't know. It doesn't feel like a smart strategic move for the, the style that they're doing. It's too know. hard to Maybe kill a 5e PC for dark sun. sun. Well, you'd have to include different variant rules, but what if the, uh, I just feel if they're going to do it, they have to have Brom. Yeah. Because his art is just like he is that world. Absolutely. And and he's evolved a lot since then. So if he were to come back, that would be insane. That would be insane cuz he his shit is so cool nowadays. It's totally yeah. out of control. He evolved massively since he did Dark Sun, so oh my god, that would be so sick. Absolutely. I think Brom should just do it on his own. I agree. Yeah, just do a Dark Sun art book. Fuck the rules. We don't need more rules and character options for crying out loud. Ridiculous. But if Brom just did a hey guys, I did a Dark Sun art book. Oh my god, I'd be scooping that. Oh yeah. So cool. There's our character art right there. Yeah, I think we just gave him a great idea. He should just have his own <laughs> role-playing game that is Dark Sun, you know, just to not use that trademark name. Dark Sun with no serial numbers. I'm, I'm sure Brom is watching right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you are watching, Brom, uh, the the invitation to come on Rolling Bones still stands. We've spoken a couple times. I want you on here, buddy. Yeah, and make a do a Morkborg supplement that's lost gods. I mean, anything. Mm -hmm. some, anything. We will eat it up. Absolutely. <laughs> At least I will. I, I, I'm a huge fan. I'm a, I'm a Brahm stan. Mm. <laughs> now, one, one topic that I really wanted to talk about with you guys. Uh, Jenny D recently made a very brilliant video about rolling less when we play role-playing games and and dan i know you actually made a post where you said you wish you'd made that video yourself yeah um <laughs> so what do you guys think about you know what she was saying in there i i tend to agree with a lot of what she said uh i think there are circumstances where rolling too much slows the game down so, so what are you guys thoughts on on her arguments in that video What do you think, Dan? Yeah. Uh, well, I actually posted on the Dungeon Craft Facebook group because it's just required viewing. And yeah, you don't need to roll for everything. Why do you, why are people make, make it? I have a passive perception of uh, 17. Uh, okay. Why are you, why is the game master even calling for a roll? Why is that a thing? Why are you rolling up, requiring anyone to roll a five? Like, why are we rolling a, a charisma check for every single time you talk to somebody? Why is that a charisma check? You know, it's just too much. Is that a thing that happens? Mm. Yeah. I'm guilty yeah, of it because myself. I've I've never it encountered that. I, I have never seen a game played in that fashion. So maybe I'm just lucky. To me, it sounds like fixing a problem that exists in a, in a limited space. I mean, rolling charisma every time you talk to a mofo? What? No. Yeah, a lot of people just want to just, like, get past the social encounter. 
Like, oh, we have to talk what? to the king. In what Make world? <laughs> I have never, ever encountered that player. Is that real? Yeah, they're on Reddit. You can read just... Reddit threads and in the comments section of my videos. It comes up all the time. It's... Fuck those people. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, <laughs> let's bypass the fucking social encounter? That's something somebody says? <laughs> yeah. What What's world my, is this? <laughs> my, one of my most popular videos, this charisma video I did, in which it, it boiled down to, you know, don't use your charisma, you know, don't use the stats so much. Just role play it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sake <laughs> this is mind-blowing to me i don't understand what this is i must live in a little niche universe because i have never ever in all these years encountered a table that needs to roll less because they're over rolling to bypass things with mechanical liberty gibbets i maybe i'm just completely out of touch at this point i i don't know what's going on i mean Props to you, Ginny D. Hell yes. Do not do that. That's crazy pants. <laughs> Role play. So, so yes, I guess there, I'm done. I, I had a little freak out there, but I completely agree. Are you it, joking me? It like is. rolling a D6, and if I get a six, we get to fast forward to the next scene. <laughs> what the fuck? Are you, are you joking? Get out of my house. <laughs> this basement no place for that kind of crap <laughs> mom we kick him will out have this conversation. i am a mango Man. vendor and i matter mm. ay, ay, ay. but yeah, me I, in a sensitive spot there to to dan's point i think it is kind of a very modern problem it's it's very much perpetuated by kind of the the reddit crowd uh when it comes to rpgs i've even Again, I'm guilty of this uh, myself. When I first started uh, DMing, I would over rely on you're having a conversation. You you know you're trying to get the better of it. Make a charisma check every single time you want to, you know, move things forward or always hmm. making people roll. It it seems to be a very very modern and and maybe even a very five e specific problem. And I don't know what it is. When you really look at 5e, it's it doesn't seem like that should be a problem that people keep running up against. But, yeah, I mean, you can't blame 5e yeah. for anything. 5e is perfectly fine. It's a system yeah. that sits there and doesn't make you do anything. Yeah. And, but doesn't for some... make you behave anyway. 5e cannot be blamed for anything. It's perfectly fine. It works great. Advantage is a cool mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Uh, uh, the minute I... you say the Reddit crowd, I start feeling itchy. Yeah, I don't know what that means or if that's real or if you're just describing like people who behave poorly because they're on Reddit. But in my knowledge, Reddit is a cesspool behavior. It's really crappy pseudo-intellectual behavior that I find appalling. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I'm at. So maybe I am living in a little fringe universe because I do not touch Reddit with a 10-foot pole. I think it brings out the worst in people. And I don't see it as very real. There's a lot of hypothetical BS on Reddit. And I don't like it. There we go. <laughs> yep. I think you wanted your hot take clip. 
<laughs> That's a good one. I think it's a, you have a lot of people coming into the hobby with 5A. Yeah. And what they want is they want rules for everything. They're like, well, what's the mechanic for that? Like in Strixhaven, they have report cards. You roll to get your grades on your report card. Yeah, but you know? do people want that? I don't know. Like it's these numbers, like crazy. Are, are these people real or are these hypothetical people? I don't know, but that's just the way it's got. Like there's also rules for dating. Like there's people want these social situation rules. Like, and I just think that's not a good, in a role playing game, just role play it. Yeah, I mean, but but do people want that? And is it making them want the game to be roll for your report card so you can work in a, a coffee shop in D&D World? Or is that just a thing that's in a game? It's it just in a book that's written on paper. I don't think that these are significant social trends. I think we're, we have a weird hypothetical player base is being implied by some of the things that are being published mm -hmm. i personally do not think they're real in great numbers i think people role play their conversations and every once in a while fuck yeah you roll charisma because you need to expedite some shit because let's go to the goblin cave all right word up we're playing D, &D. i don't I, I i i really have a hard time believing that people want to roll for their grade in espresso making that want to be the operative thing we're arguing about here and in numbers just because it appears in a watsi book i don't believe there are large numbers of players that are somehow a problem because they're they want to do this thing that's in a certain little rules statement i feel like when you really sit down with almost anybody they're great it's fun it's awesome it doesn't have all these things we're always these boogeymen that were like conjuring up out of 5e you know like i i, I just throw it out there at mace we sat down to play mortborg and with complete strangers and our gm was like this super wild and awesome autistic kid and right off the bat he's just like i'm autistic and i have add and we're like oh fuck this is kind of awkward but it, it wound up being super fun and super awesome so even like a fringe case that you know nothing about playing a game you know nothing about none of these hypothetical boogeymen appeared everybody kind of role played but kind of used the dice when it was handy and kind of got along and we kind of played in turns but we kind of fucked with initiative when it was handy and that's D, &D. i i don't know this <laughs> hypothetical crazy shit it really gets me itching i'll tell you what as you can tell <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> And to your point, I, I, you know, I don't know how many people experience this at their tables, but there at least seems to be enough steam for this building online that, you know, Jenny felt the need to, to make this video and speak to those people. So someone out there somewhere is either doing this or at least telling people they're doing this and telling people that they should do it this way. So... Uh, that that you know. is a very fair and calm assessment. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I rolled too much. I called for too many die rolls when I was younger. You know, so I think it's natural. And it's also natural sort of for people who are getting in the hobby, they're learning it. They're, 
the question becomes, isn't there a mechanic for social encounters? Why isn't there a mechanic? How do I run a social mecha mechanic, you know, encounter if there was no mechanic for it? There's this, there's a kind of a feeling uh, among some people that like, well, you know, Wizards of the Coast is uh, is up there and they're in lab coats studying this thing and you know, they're going to come down and they're going and, and it's if you think it up it's wrong you know if they think it up it's it it's good and they're waiting for the right you know that's where it, a lot of it comes from they are they're they're waiting for social mechanics and i just think social mechanics is any kind of more die rolling is not necessarily good especially for the role playing part hmm. I think, I think a lot, a lot of that it... definitely happens in the the conversation of the internet. Mm -hmm. I tell you, when you sit down with five people, shit just is not a thing. I don't know. Yeah. I I'm going, of course, only on anecdotal evidence. So in my anecdotal evidence, these conversations stay on the internet. Mm. I, I don't. I'm not sitting down with people who are going like, "How can we resolve talking to this mango vendor with a Watsi-approved mechanic?" I'm like, what the. F what are you saying? What are you? Are you a trash scanning robot? What? Where did you come from? <laughs> Get out of here! No normal, <laughs> normal people don't say that kind of shit. Anyway, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I do oh. think a lot. A lot of this comes down to the the new players. When you say you know you just role play it, you just you know you you decide as the GM how this is gonna go. Like, and and that's how you do it. They go. That's arbitrary. And what you have to realize as a GM is it's all arbitrary. This whole thing is arbitrary. <laughs> and you as the GM are in the position where, you know, you arbitrate. You are the arbitrator. You're the arbiter and you know best, to quote Chess. So uh, you really have to embrace that side of things of, yes, this is arbitrary, but we all agreed to, to do this. So, you know, this have is you guys how we're ever been in the game? Yeah. A player barked at the GM and said, that's arbitrary. I have, but I will give the the player who did that credit that they were very tired at the time, but I have had someone go, well, that was just <laughs> arbitrary. And I was like, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> You're like, these mangoes are three gold pieces each. That's arbitrary. Okay, so anyway, Dan, you nodded. You've encountered this in the real world. I've had so many angry players, you know, like over the years, like rules lawyers that are like, that's not the way it's done. I'll give you an example of some, something tangentially related. Armor classes. Why is chainmail and a shield armor class 15, 16? Because Gary Gygax decided 40 years ago. Yeah. You know, Everything in the game is the Game Master sets a difficulty class, except armor. You know, so like when I'm running the game, when I'm running the game, it's like, okay, you what did you roll? You rolled a 15, you hit. I'll, I'll chuck, you know, when I'm rolling with my players, I'll chuck a handful of dice and I'll be like, boom. I got four <laughs> hit. You, six, 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 six. Right, like that fast. But some players are like, well, uh, my armor class is 16, but I don't, I'm rounding to the nearest five. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> why is armor class a specific number? 
and it's because Wizards of the Coast printed the book, and and it's weird. It's like, well, the the game master can be imaginative and should set a difficulty, except for this thing. We have a chart, <laughs> and it's like it's a suggestion, you know. It doesn't have to be that way, and then. You get people who are like, "Let's stop and look up the rules." That's a big thing. I mean, it might not be, you know, for you or for me. It, I don't... it does happen with spells. I think that that syndrome I've seen happen with spells a great deal. Yeah, you know, people want to stop the fun and look up the spell. And you know, if that's fun and that's interesting, then yeah, rock on. Um, but I don't know if we were playing and you like threw like four d20s on the table and i you know i saw three of them are above 15 and it's like three arrows hit the group i mean i'm like fuck this is great this is gonna move quickly yeah but i, I guess the thing we're we're scratching at here is the is the god status of numbers that are written in books by people who work at a corporation that's owned by hasbro yeah, yeah. basically so if if that is a saliently large group who feels that way about certain numbers written by a certain group of people, I feel I feel for them. <laughs> They're living in a mind prison. <laughs> and I hope that they find their way out of that mind prison before it's too late. <laughs> I think I, I mean I've seen I've seen young people playing D D and it's like that. It looks like six kids like sitting around one's on a phone one is asleep and the game master and two other kids are looking up rules I mean, i've seen it happen yeah so that's uh you know they got to watch more runehammer and more dungeon craft absolutely well, I, I don't know but wow holy shit <laughs> it's like when the when the thing came out that you could have an elf with like a strength bonus Holy shit, stop the presses. A, an elf with a strength bonus? Dear God, are you mad? It's heresy. Well, no, I mean, my, my elf is kind of ripped, you know? Like, that's what I'm thinking. And they had to do this whole thing of like, we've opened it up and it's just like, is there seriously a large group of people who was refusing when a player said like, hey, wouldn't it be kind of cool if I had like a like a beefy elf rather than like a Legolas type character? <laughs> like, in my mind, that was just unthinkable. But I guess maybe that is a thing. And I'm, I have a new name for it. And I'm going to call it the Mind Prison. The Mind Prison. That's a the good one. Prison. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And you writing that down puts you in your yeah, own I'm, Mind Prison. Dan. I'm writing it down. I'm writing down the Mind Prison. But <laughs> you're right. Never say. And then next to it, my prison. <laughs> I, I don't know that I fully get the concept, Brandon. Could you perhaps print it in a book with a D and ampersand and a D on the cover? Uh, oh, man. My prison. It's probably a spell somewhere. Hmm. Yeah. But bring it back to Ginny D. I think she's great. And that was a great video. And I think it's great because she hits a younger audience than I do. And uh, I think it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a lesson that I think we all needed to learn a lot earlier than we learned it. Uh, me, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, that Jenny's out there giving that message to kind of that, that big audience that she has there. 
Maybe we'll get a few uh, a few people paroled from the mine prison. Thanks to thanks to Jenny D. <laughs> I, I hope so. That's good work. Good work being done. And and cosplay is definitely a gateway drug to escaping the mine prison. Yes, it is. Mm. Now, uh, one one last topic, and maybe this is too big a topic to end with, but I'm going to try and do it anyway. Uh, I I very recently kind of stumbled upon this notion that we as game masters are uh, the watchmaker. We set the cogs, we put everything in motion, and then we give this machine as it's moving to the players and say, how do you deal with this thing? What Are you are you going to try and stick a stick between these cogs and, and see if you can make the robot stop moving? What are your thoughts on this idea that, that GMs are watchmakers? Do, do you agree with that? Do you have other thoughts on that? Do you think I'm wrong? Uh, you know, I, I kind of just want to run that idea by you guys. <laughs> you want to go I mean, first? I, I absolutely am not a watchmaker. Okay. Like, I don't even fully know what that would mean. I, I, I do know that there is a beautiful myth of a finely tuned sandbox world that is slowly uncovered by characters that had previous reality before it was looked at. Um, and that sounds amazing. But uh, I know. <laughs> I don't see it that way. I, I see it much more as friends discovering sort of devious things together on a week-to-week -week basis. And I, I'm well known for this, that anybody who plans more than one session into the future is denying their players magic of what this is i i strongly believe that so if built if the watch is being built by all five of us one cog at a time okay i'm okay with that but the concept that the gm holds some wondrous thing to be exposed i think is silly i think the thing to be exposed that's wondrous is the relationship between the players when they actually start to expose their their true flaws and psychology to each other whether on purpose or not that to me is the the touchdown of of game mastering not not oh my god the good guy's actually a bad guy <laughs> to me that is not magic of it so i think i'm going to give a resounding no i am not a watchmaker it's more like uh i don't know it's more like more like gardening yeah the if you want to use that analogy in so far as when I think of my villains they're on a timeline yeah like the world constantly moves forward like there are certain events that'll happen like well there's gonna be an invasion at this point you know and that but I'm not gonna say to the players what they're going to do <laughs> you know that then I guess it would be a, a watch but like Brandon, I, I don't plan more than a session ahead. I don't know how you could do that, really, right, yeah. because there. And even even in the uh, in the types of campaigns I run, which again very much in the keeping the borderlands kind of realm, where you have, I guess, if you want to see the caves of chaos as a, as part of the watch, and the characters are going to interact with it, then maybe. Um, 
but I just kind of go with the flow and let the players, as long as they do it one session in advance, you got to tell me at the end of the session, where do you want to go next time? Because I have to be able to plan for you. But like, whatever they do, it, it's, it's going to be weird. It's going to be more interesting than you could have thought of by yourself individually. Um, and if you try, if you try to script out an epic quest, they're not going to go on it. Right. You know, <laughs> they're, they're not going to go on it. Like you can't have Lord of the Rings the way it's written as a role-playing game campaign. Because right. one of those characters, one of those bits would have stabbed the other and taken that ring. Like they, there's no way a player in D and D would not take the ring. Gandalf <laughs> says, "Oh, terrible things are happening. I don't care. I want this ring. I want to level up. I like, and that's what they're going to do. So you just you can't force it. If you try to force it, they're not going to do what you want anyway." Lord of the Rings campaign, all Boromir. <laughs> yep, nine Boromirs set out from Rivendell. Mm-hmm. That's what it would do. They'd be fighting over who gets to wield the ring, and yep. and then they'd be like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick Sauron's ass," you know, like I'm gonna put this <laughs> ring on, and I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go right into war. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and that's what they do. So just let him do it. I do kind of approach it as uh, you know, like you said, the the world is constantly moving. I'm not trying to you know set up. Uh, like like Brandon said, a, a huge sandbox that's slowly uncovered. It's more uh, the really it, it comes down to the villain. The villain is going to do what the villain's going to do. Uh, how do you intersect with with what he has going on? How do you how do you interact with his plan to cross the river and take mm-hmm. over the other kingdom? Uh, mm. What point do you interfere? Where where do you kind of come into that because I've set this in motion. This is going to happen. You don't know when, you don't know where, maybe you don't even know that it's happening, but you're going to see the consequences of it as they unfold. I like that a lot. Rather than a watch, it's like rolling a bowling ball. Yep. And and that's also kind of what Dan mentioned. Like the invasion (laughs) is going to happen. It might be like session eight. It might be session 14. But it's going to happen. Like, the Huns are coming. I'm going to roll this bowling ball. I know some shit about this bowling ball. And I I like your point there. Like, I know some properties of this bowling ball. I got a few secrets. Because, you know, I got drunk the other night and I wrote down some crazy shit. And I'm going to stick to that stuff. But it's only about this bowling ball. Like, this whole other... Everything else is completely up for grabs. But I do like that metaphor. Because then at the beginning of the campaign, you do kind of like go... Yeah, and you kind of slowly roll it and watch it go down. And sometimes players just go the other direction. Yeah, <laughs> that is definitely a possibility. Um, but a watch just feels so controlled to me, whereas a bowling ball is kind of like, what the fuck's going to happen? And I just use. Oh, sorry, what was that, Dan? I was going to say, there you go. That's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> bowling. And I, I do see what you guys are, are talking about with a watch being kind of a, a controlled, complex environment. I just used it that way because of the the idea in, in deism that uh, God is a watchmaker and set the universe in motion. And I felt like it kind of, mm. 
you set the universe in motion and then the players interact with it. So that's where the watch came from. It's not, you know, that, that you're making a, a Swiss timepiece that has all these intricate pieces that all moved. It's it's more just you've set something in motion uh, for these people to interact with now. It, we're getting metaphysical, but um, when I think about the world as a uh, role-playing game, I always thought, I always think the real world, if there's a deity, it's not a watchmaker, it's a force that has given the universe power to recreate itself. That's what humans do. We recreate ourselves. We have a portion of control in that universe. You know, we're creating the universe for future people. So it's an organic kind of, it's a participant, you're a participant in the creation as opposed to this was created and now it's just going to keep moving forward because it's mechanical, it's organic. And that's how I, I tend to think probably our uh, real existence is and also about, uh, you know, role-playing games too. Like, ideally it should be a situation where uh, the game master kind of thinks of parameters, but then the, the players have a share in that creativity. Mm. Uh, and, if, and if there's a deity, that would be a more advanced deity, you know, to give its creation uh, a part, you know, a, a share and make it self-perpetuate. I think it's a, it, just because we're, we're poking holes in it doesn't make it a non-useful metaphor. I think it's a super useful metaphor because it, it, it brings up a, a really gnarly question, which is like, is a game master like a god? inside the context of the world and my answer would be absolutely not if anything the game master is more like the, the mango vendor and and in a way the players are accidental gods um i'm i'm also to get metaphysical to join to ante into the poker game with dan i'd like to ante in as a person who doesn't really find familiarity in the concept of like a watchmaker god or like a big sort of monotheistic god that's just not part of my world. Uh, I, that's hard for me to to put my head. Even even when I talk about a god or a deity, I think of them just as sort of like big, awesome, durable people. I, I don't think of them in this mega Saint Augustine kind of context. But I love it as a thought experiment because it asks: Is is a game master like a god? <laughs> and I think in the in the funnest possible game, if funnest is even a word. I don't think a game master is a god. I think a, a game master is like a servant, is like a, a, a street sweeper in a way, is a sort of a, is like a lowly sort of wilderness guide, you know, who's kind of just barely, barely hanging on in a way. <laughs> like, I almost never get like this feeling. I don't know about y'all. <laughs> I much more have like a this kind of feeling yeah. as a game master. You know, like we're going too fast and the wind's getting really strong. <laughs> like, <laughs> what am I going to, what, what, how, you guys want to do what? Oh, crap. Okay, you're going to go up the river, but what about, well, okay, actually forget it. <laughs> you know, like, so it's very interesting metaphor to, to muck around with. And, and I think what this shows is the way that the three of us, um, the way that we perceive the world and the way that we perceive the idea of a, a creator, a god, is kind of informing the way that we see 
uh, role-playing games, because, again, I, to <laughs> also put my chips on the table, uh, I am coming at this as a religious person who believes uh, the J.R.R. Tolkien quote that we create because we are created. Uh, so that's... I think that's what's informing my view of this and, and my kind of couching it in that metaphor where, uh, you know, your, your view on not being able to, to really conjure up the concept of, of gods in that way, Brandon, is kind of informing, you know, your view of this. And, and Dan, yours is probably having some kind of effect on, on your view of how all this works. So that's... It's an it says interesting things about people psychologically that we approach <laughs> the games in these ways. I think, and how much chaos ensues. Yep. Cool. So on that highly metaphysical note, I think that's probably where we need to call it for this evening. So I will. Uh, turn this over to uh, to Dan and Brandon. If you guys will uh, tell people where they can find your content, what you've got coming up uh, pretty soon here, uh, the floor is yours. You go first. Uh, <laughs> Google Runehammer. You'll find all of my stuff. I have a complete corner on that word. <laughs> so, like, find all my shenanigans. As for what's coming up, I have no freaking clue. I just finished like a 70 hour week trying to do a game jam with myself to uh, publish a, like a, a con style game to Patreon in one week time, which was a super dumb idea that was like really just ate my brain. So what am I going to do next? I have no idea. I'm getting really interested in collaborating. Um, on that note, that is kind of coming up. I am sort of, not sort of, I am the publisher for Scotty's upcoming easy d6 game so there's a lot of super fun stuff there and i'm going to be a publisher for the first time so process that uh so that's what i'm going to be doing and we're going to have a motherfucking blacklight poster yo nice. so keep your eyes out for that blacklight poster that's that's and you got to buy one so i can pay my rent do, 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 do. that's <laughs> that's about my stuff If you're the publisher, that makes you my boss because I'm writing the introduction to the Easy D6. I'm I'm your boss. <laughs> yeah, he asked me to do the introduction, so I'll be doing that. You can get my stuff at Quest Givers. I got McDeath there. I got Frankenstein, Professor Dungeon Master's Frankenstein. I have the Eldritch Hack coming out. It's a one-stat Cthulhu game compatible with the more popular Cthulhu game, and that's going to be coming out uh a couple of months and i'm um, constantly working on my house rules deathbringer oh we have a kitty we're and at that point we're at the cat stage <laughs> yeah. absolutely well guys thank you so much for coming on this has been a great episode even if we got uh metaphysical there at the end this is this has been a great conversation i'm glad that you were able to uh to join me on here uh, once again, guys, just as a reminder, uh, if you like what you saw tonight, you know, we put on stuff like this every week uh, here at Valor Studio. So, uh, you know, follow us here on Twitch, hit the subscribe button if you feel so inclined. And if you want to know what we've got coming up, uh, ValorStudios.com and the Valor Studios Discord, which you'll see in chat, are some of the best ways to do it. You can find my stuff specifically 
at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram's the place where you can see the miniatures that I like to paint. So there's that if you're into minis. And uh, speaking of minis, next week we have a, uh, a guest on named David Wood. He is one of the contributors to Lost Minis Wiki. He is also the brain behind DearTonyBlair.com, which, uh, unlike the name suggests, is a miniature archive. And he and I are going to be talking about how uh, miniatures evolved from wargaming and got into uh, tabletop gaming. We're going to be talking about some, uh, some history. We're going to be talking about the Prussians, talking about H.G. Wells, all kinds of crazy stuff with the history of miniatures and how they have become what they are today. So that'll be next week. And until then, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and with us at Valor Studios. And I will see you all next time.